Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello friends, welcome back to the Living Open podcast. This week's episode is on accessing states of liberation, imagination, and possibility through the body with Marika Heinrichs. Marika uses she, her pronouns, and she is a cis, queer femme of Soviet, German, British, and Irish ancestry who believes that reconnecting with the wisdom of our bodies is vital to ending systems of domination and supremacy. She has practiced as a somatic therapist and educator within social movement spaces for over a decade and holds a commitment to pushing back against the appropriation of BIPOC cultural wisdom that happens so often in mainstream somatics, as well as to cultivate spaces for people of European ancestry to connect with something in ourselves older than whiteness through embodied practice. I really respect Marika's work so much, and I loved having this really expansive conversation with her about somatics and healing and justice and our bodies and nuanced safety. I do want to say that there is a little trigger warning for a non-graphic mention of assault, so you can opt in or out to listening to this, knowing that, or um, yeah, taking care of yourself however you need. So in this episode, we talk about Marika's journey with healing and somatics coming from a community organizing background, trauma, justice, and somatics as inherently in relationship, accessing states of liberation, imagination, and possibility through the body, what happens when we drop into connection and spaciousness, trauma responses to systems of domination and oppression, finding spaces where there's opportunity to access some safety so we can soften and connect, and safety as shades of gray and not as a binary and not as the absence of discomfort, respecting and honoring the ways bodies and nervous systems are designed and actually work, Christian supremacy culture, a practice of being in deep reverence and relationship with lineage, somatics as inherently politicized and radical, appropriating our own lineages, doing what we don't know how to do, and holding grief when it's pathologized and we're disconnected from our cultural practices and rituals around grief. Before we get into the conversation, I just wanted to let you know that the Religious Trauma Workbook is available at the link in the description. It's a digital workbook with prompts and reflections and meditations and rituals and somatic exercises to support you if you are in process with healing from the impacts of dogmatic religion or would like to be in process. It's a support for that journey. Um, I also have a meditation album intended to support folks healing from dogmatic religion coming out in a couple of days, coming out on December 1st. So um, there's no link for that yet, but stay tuned. I'm excited to share it uh, when it's ready. 
So I hope you enjoy this episode, this conversation with Marika. Definitely check out her work as well. She has some really beautiful spaces and offerings if you're wanting to go deeper around these topics. And feel free to share on social media and connect on Instagram or send me an email or wherever if you want to um, be in conversation around this or have thoughts feelings about this episode that you feel like sharing um i'd love to hear and i love talking with you all so here we go so i would love to hear about your journey of healing of coming into the somatics work that you're doing um yeah tell us everything you feel like sharing about how you got here oh gosh (laughs) (sighs) i feel like every time i talk about this i tell a different story so um I, I came to somatics, um, really, you know, really gratefully and really in such a, in such a kind of what feels like really significant and what's the word I'm looking for. It just felt very aligned that I came to somatics through a political lineage, um, called generative somatics and, I found that work at a time when I was had been doing a lot of direct action organizing and um, mostly migrant justice and indigenous solidarity organizing in um, in Toronto at the time in Toronto, and had experienced a lot of really intense interpersonal violence and sexual assault and conflict within my activist kind of family and community. Um, right around the same time that there was a really intense um, kind of infiltration and like state um, kind of, yeah, like crackdown on activist movements. So this was after the G20 um, economic summit happened in Toronto in 2010. And it was just like so fragmenting and heartbreaking. And I was feeling pretty, pretty hopeless and like a lot of despair. And I ended up somehow finding my way to a workshop I'd done body work before like as a client in my 20s um and but I'd never and I and I sort of felt this like knowing in my body around trauma and social justice but even like I don't know this would have been like maybe 15 or so years ago like we weren't having those conversations on the level that we're having them now Mm -hmm. and I read a book called A Language Older Than Words by Derek Jensen um which was like really impactful for me. And he talks in that book about the kind of like structure of um, trauma in a family mapping onto the sort of social structures of white supremacy and capitalism. And it was like, it lit something up for me. So when I found generative somatics, it was this like amazing kind of like, I didn't even know what I'd found, you know, it was just Mm. like, Oh, we're, we're all sitting in this room talking about like, structural issues and then like listening to each other's bodies I was like what's happening wow (laughs) yeah um and then yeah I kind of like fumbled around for a few years just sort of not knowing what to do and I ended up deciding to become a therapist and moving to the east coast of Canada and by some like similarly like similarly like synchronous kind of magic found a, a generative somatics practitioner there who I ended up working with um, and continue to work with now. And then eventually through that work, did my own entered training in that, in that lineage, um, a few years later. 
And then that just kind of like snowballed into this whole world of somatics and embodiment and many other directions and many other lineages and trainings um, and to becoming a practitioner myself who works with a lot of younger politicized folks um, and queer trans people. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing the journey. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you want to share any more about the connection between like justice and somatics and trauma as part of that too? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that my experience of doing this work has been like a kind of common thread through it has been kind of bringing things back together bringing things back into relationship that are actually just like already inherently in relationship mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like oh that's just how that is and I'm just kind of waking up to that so instead of being like you know we're bringing these things together like somatics and social justice it's like well the body is inherently this this place where we experience oppression and power and um you know the like suppression of the body and disconnection from the body is a part of every system of domination and supremacy through history. So in some ways, it's like sort of talking about the the connections between trauma and the body and trauma lives in the body. We can't, you know, talk about trauma without talking about the nervous system. And um, so, yeah, I think to me, it's like, at first it felt like it was this case in my experience that I had my like activist life where I went to like meetings and organized protests. And then I had this like life where I went to therapy and learned about healing and attachment and they never felt like connected. Mm -hmm. And then I started to find spaces um, at first through generative somatics where people were bringing those things together. And, you know, now being like over a decade into that work, I'm like, Oh, they just are together. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, the systems that we've been colonized by have sort of taught us to treat, to treat them separately. Um, but I think that, you know, like our bodies are this sort of like portal and, and vessel through which we can access connection to the natural world and to, mm-hmm. um, to, to kind of, you know, more than regular states of consciousness that, bring into our awareness like you know this kind of sense of um of to me what feels very much like justice and liberation and and a way of being and perceiving and experiencing things outside of these sort of structures and systems that we live in so it's where we can feel for like imagination and possibility and Mm. it's like a different way of of being embodied and being together so yeah I think that now it just feels like obvious, <laughs> but I realize that's not how the world works. So we still have to have mm-hmm. language to t- sort of talk about how that happens and how we become more embodied and what that process and those steps kind of look like. Yeah. You saying those words, imagination and possibility feel so beautiful. And I think mm-hmm. also it's like accessing softness and love and care and spaciousness in our bodies too. Like when I think about how these different systems like capitalism and racism and patriarchy, like how they actually feel in my body, even just like saying those words, it's like this rigidness and there's hardness and there's tightness. And it's like the opposite of this like beautiful fertile ground for all these things that we're talking about. And it feels like a stark contrast. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think what's like interesting and kind of like tracing the histories of how some of those systems came to be is that there is a direct kind of, um, kind of like, a, like alongside, you know, the kind of like, uh, colonization of indigenous practices in Europe. And then, and then when that process came, um, to Turtle Island and the kind of like imposition of Christianity and, and capitalism and the enlightenment, there's, there's all of these like points at which wisdom, the, the body's wisdom and, and embodiment and connection through collective embodiment was directly, you know, um, targeted and attacked. And so to me, it's like, well, those systems wouldn't go after something unless it were really powerful. And unless it were a threat to those systems and yeah, there's a way that when we drop into that kind of like connection and spaciousness, we are softer and we are like, even just from a nervous system perspective, you know, our digestive system works better. We have more access to, you know, our immune system. It reduces inflammation in the body. Our hormonal structures are able, our systems are able to function and regenerate and recharge. We're able to rest. We're able to experience a range of emotions. We're able to kind of, take deep breaths and see the color and things. And there's a way that all of those systems that we've just named are like they're contractions. They like tighten us in and they pull us in towards our center and like disconnect us from each other. And um, that's a trauma response. That's how the body responds when it feels unsafe. So yeah, these are some of the ways that it's like, we can't not talk about this aspect of it. Um, we're missing such a, an important piece. Yeah. Yeah, that pulling away piece, that like pulling inside, that makes me think about the first time that I really connected like larger systems of oppression to something I was actually feeling in my body, which was a few years ago after I had been assaulted on the subway and I had been like doing some healing work around that and trying to be okay. Um, but still, and I, I still have a bit of this, although not as much anymore. I was noticing how like tight and afraid I felt walking around outside in a way I hadn't felt before. And it felt very like not conscious, but it was just like my body was literally having a trauma response to just being outside and to just hearing people walk behind me, which is, I live in a city. So that happens constantly every time I go outside. Um, and that's when like something clicked for me and like a light bulb moment happened. And I was like, Oh, right. Like this isn't, this isn't even just about like experiencing that assault. That assault is one piece in this large puzzle and this entire system that oppresses all of these people. And like my body is having a response and awareness around that. And it's a response and awareness that makes perfect sense. And it feels yes. terrible, but it makes sense <laughs> that I feel yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're like, just that like naming of like when we notice it and when we don't notice it, that if we're kind of born into these, some of the things we're born into, we don't even realize or even remember consciously when we learned to contract and mm -hmm. feel afraid and other things we have more kind of like comparable experience. Like we can remember a before and an after of yeah. like how it's shifted or changed us. And, and I think like one of the kind of really controversial or contentious things within or like what I would say kind of differentiates maybe a more politicized version of somatics from a kind of the kind of like psychotherapyization of somatics. Mm -hmm. um, if I can use that word that I just made up um, <laughs> <Love it>. is <laughs> like, <laughs> is acknowledging that systems piece, right. That like, mm -hmm. 
it's actually not the the outcome or the goal that we just like walk around feeling like soft and open and spacious all the time because that would actually not be adaptive to our environment. Like that would be in some ways a kind of bypassing, like the conditions aren't totally safe. Like you do need a certain degree of like um, guardedness or awareness or like vigilance when you're in certain spaces and depending on like how marginalized your like body is or how hyper visible your body is um, in the world, like we need to have, we need to be able to use those, those responses we need. And exactly like you were saying, they make sense. And what I really love supporting folks with is finding spaces where there is also the opportunity to like, let some of that go to drop some of that so that we're not carrying it into to spaces where maybe we actually like do have more access to safety with our people and we can like shift out of that um, or let let some of that soften so that we can take in a little bit more connection and breath and aliveness knowing that like we always have the option to be like okay the wall's going up again when I'm when I'm walking home right um yeah and and also in, even in those situations where we sometimes where we feel unsafe like being able to kind of gauge you know precise with more precision what's happening and like how can i kind of take care of myself here what are my options like where are the exits or is there someone who i can ask for help or even like how we take care of ourselves in situations that don't feel totally safe because mm-hmm. safety isn't a binary it's like there's such so many shades of gray within that word yeah And honestly, I can't tell you how good it feels to hear you say that. I have had, I've talked with multiple practitioners about this over the years Mm -hmm. and the amount of times that I've heard people say, like, just tell yourself that you're safe and it's okay, or Mm -hmm. rely on like a higher source of protection and you'll be fine and you won't feel anxious. And I'm like, okay but also like that is so real like the actual mm-hmm. lack of safety is physical and real and mm-hmm. how can I like gaslight my body into being like no you're safe when my body is clearly like I don't feel safe no that's so mm-hmm. traumatic for us it's re-traumatizing to like mm-hmm. I just think about like the kind of gaslighting that goes on in like so many therapy and healing spaces especially for like queer and trans people, for people of color around like exactly what you're saying, like just tell yourself you're safe. And it's like, but you're not. (laughs) And it's like, I think there's this unwillingness to acknowledge that the world isn't safe for a lot of people a lot of the time. And Mm -hmm. we don't want to, and it's also very individual kind of, it's like we can create safety in, you know, these like little insular individualized spaces and and yes that is important it's important for people to have up spaces where they can feel safe but we also need to create conditions in the world where people can be safer it's it's not just about like going and you know being privately with one other person with one practitioner where you kind of work through that and then the world is just going to be like open and available for your you know full like healing experience is just like not it's not reality (laughs) right well I feel like that approach is a lot of what is kind of wrong in these spaces is like it's about you having a problem and if we fix the problem in quotes in you then everything will be fine and it's like Mm -hmm. yeah it's missing the entire wider lens and how it's not Mm -hmm. just an individualized thing that's happening yeah Um, yeah yeah, absolutely. And I and I think 
something I've been really like exploring and kind of sitting with and like listening for in my practice has also been, you know, the kind of, I think like often happens in, on the, like in radical spaces and in leftist spaces, we can sometimes like take things to the other extreme. And so there are, you know, practitioners who are sort of talking about and problematizing this idea of safety, which is so important. Um, and, and, but I'm also seeing people sort of say like, there is no safety, nothing safe. We're not, we can't feel safe that we, you know, we need to learn how to do these things without feeling safe. And it's like, well, I mean, I don't totally know that that's the answer either. <laughs> and, and I think that's where for me, it's more like, what do we even mean by this word? And this is like one of the things that the English language that's so clunky is that it just has these like finite fixed, you know, <laughs> terms like safe. And I, I'm like, that word isn't actually very helpful. I don't really know what that means. And like, let's unpack what, what we're actually talking about. And, mm-hmm. um, and also just respecting and honoring that, like the way that bodies and, and the nervous system are designed. I mean, if we look at like a kind of a map or like a chart that like describes the kind of nervous system activation cycle, we're actually meant to be able to move through like many, many different mm-hmm. um, kind of shapes and, and experiences of like blended degrees of like safety and not, and like not safe, right? Like the, those things in the body, it's like, yeah. so much more spacious and nuanced and and also that the body is that through like evol- evolutionary processes designed to um respond in certain ways you know based on, on an, an assessment of safety so again there's a bit of a like invalidation of the body to say well we don't like safety doesn't matter and we can't ever have that I just like I'm like I want better for people like Mm -hmm. so I feel a lot more curious about how can we create conditions of like safer or safe enough or um and explore what we mean by that can we resource from the natural world can Mm -hmm. we turn towards each other and say I'm fucking scared Mm -hmm. and how does that change an experience you know that what we were talking about that pulling in and into and like isolating is what we do when we're afraid, but it takes us out of um, connection and relationship to each other, which also in our bodies brings us more into a state of, of safety. It's like, there's physiological processes that happen. We're more able to access um, the present moment and problem solving capacities. So it's like, imagine what, what it would be like if when we were like out in the streets we were like also like turning towards each other and like holding hands and being like, I'm scared and I've got you as opposed mm-hmm. to like the kind of sort of sh- hard shapes that we can often go into. So. Yeah. yeah. That feels so, so complicated. <laughs> it's so complicated as you're talking. It's making me think about how like having access to safety makes me feel more okay to be unsafe you know yeah like (laughs) which is like a secure attachment thing too but like I feel more able to move in unsafe places and ways when I know I have access to safety and spaces where I feel safe and people I feel safe with and can soften into and have that because yeah I agree just not having safety ever my whole body is like when I hear that that feels so sad yeah and I like also, I think that that reaction against safety is like coming from a really like a wise place that's responding to I think what's a very like kind of white, um, 
sort of heteronormative dogmatic kind of safety, right? That like um, folks are saying like, no, that's not our reality. And we don't, we don't get to, that's like not what we're aiming for. And the kind of ways that in like therapy and healing world, a lot of like ideas about safety have been really shaped by like, by a kind of white whiteness version of safety, which I don't think is actually safe. I think it's just the absence of discomfort, which is not safety. <laughs> right. You're like, you're saying like safety is actually like being able to be with discomfort. Like it's safe enough. We, you know, to feel a sense of belonging enough that we can also be like, I don't agree or that hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that goes right to the roots of, of whiteness and unbelonging. And, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that differentiated that like stood out to me about learning um, somatics through through GS when I first kind of came to this work was that there was an acknowledgement of those conditions and that it was really through my like black and queer and trans teachers who really modeled and embodied like a like possibilities for mm-hmm. much more nuance in those conversations and spaces in embodied ways that I I feel really grateful to that like modeling and I really yeah, because of seeing that possibility in people. I, I it taught me that something taught me to feel something in my body that I hadn't felt before. Mm. So that's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. That feels like what you're saying feels like such a shallow version of safety. How we're like just not feeling any discomfort ever is like that's not real safety. And that makes me think about too a connection to like we can, this idea of like, we can only love ourselves if we like believe that we're perfect, (laughs) you know? And I think that's Mm -hmm. why, like for a lot of times for white Mm -hmm. people, it's like so triggering to talk about like anti-racism or like our roles and all of this is because I don't know, there's some weird thing where we feel like we can only like love ourselves or be okay if we like have this like shallow version of care Mm -hmm. for ourselves and love rather than like seeing Mm -hmm. everything and doing actual work to heal and to find more nuanced and real versions of safety and love that are deep and that are true and more honest yes deeply I so feel that it's like that as you're talking I'm like imagining that like just like staying in that cycle of like Mm -hmm. to be good enough and lovable I just have to meet these conditions and then like I'm Mm -hmm. never meeting the conditions so I never feel good enough and lovable and so it's just like we're just cycling around in that all the time meanwhile like nothing's changing <laughs> and or, like yeah. yeah we're just kind of un un uh, uh, intentionally you know re just kind of keeping the conditions in place yeah. as they are and, and it feels so bad too it feels so yeah. bad absolutely terrible yeah there's like a real self kind of punishing um sort of like doing penance quality to that that mm. um yeah is really so like Think I've been I've been learning a little bit more about um, Paul Kivel's work and um, writing about Christian supremacy, and mm. um, he talks about how Christian supremacy culture has kind of like also really infused a lot of radical spaces and um, organizing communities, and we don't have as much language or like understanding around how that's shaped culture within like radical communities as we do maybe mm. around like some other s- systemic um forms of of domination and and that kind of like doing penance and like purity and like good Mm -hmm. and evil and all of these things it's like just listening to his listening to an interview with him and reading starting to read a bit of his work and just feeling like oh this is this is naming and putting words to something that 
feels really deep. Um, mm. And he sort of talks about how that is so embedded and hegemonic that we like don't even see it. Um, yeah. And it's so intertwined with whiteness. So, yeah. Oh, I'm definitely going to have to check out his work. That mm-hmm. sounds really interesting. I think to me, I connect that idea of Christian supremacy to all kinds of binary thinking mm-hmm. um, because that's like my background and what I was raised in and what I saw over and over again every day yeah. in my family, every Sunday and Wednesday at church was like all of this binary thinking. And yeah, I see it so much how it comes into spirituality world too. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's not just in Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so... I'm doing a um, PhD right now and I'm in my first semester. So it's kind of like this mm. whole, like, it's just, it's a wild experience of returning to school. And my, my PhD is this kind of like funny program. It's a, it's a PhD in somatics, but it's like kind of housed within a program in transpersonal psychology. And I didn't even know what transpersonal psychology really was before I started this program. <laughs> but I've been learning a lot about it. And it's kind of like the psychological study of spiritual and, and like, more than regular states of consciousness. And it's so fascinating because it's like seeing within this world of really unpacking and trying to understand through the lens of consciousness and the self, like how we experience, you know, um, more than regular states of consciousness or transpersonal or transcendental or mystical experiences. And there's still so much within that Mm. world that's like, hierarchical uh binary like where it's just you know makes me think about how often we're learning about different cultures and traditions that have been either like shared or appropriated um through the still through the lens of like these these ways of looking at things right like how we understand Mm -hmm. yoga or how we understand um lots of different things is like so still so shaped by like the lens of the kind of like mostly white male teachers who mm-hmm. kind of have like popularized these things. And anyway, it's just made me really be like, wow, the layers of this are so deep. <laughs> so deep. Yeah. yeah. It's really deep. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you um, if you wanted to share more about like the theft and appropriation and somatic space and like also how like the connection for white folks working with somatics to European embodiment practices and engaging with practices in ways that, yeah, are not appropriative and stealing. Oh, yeah. So much. The more, you know, those questions that you're like, I'm interested in this. And then you kind of start to explore it and you realize that it's like actually like opening and unfolding like a whole other kind of like paradigm. (laughs) That's been kind of the experience for me. It started with like, how can I not appropriate? And like, now I'm realizing that that question, while is like, well, it's important. It's, it's like so much deeper than that. And so, um, yeah, I think in... I think what part of what it's sort of like starting to reveal for me is um, a practice of like being in like a deep reverence and relationship with lineage Mm. and that the kind of like a historicism or like disconnection from history and not talking about like where things come from is such a 
it's such a like isolating, disconnecting, and also like really capitalist, narcissistic mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> thing, oh right? God. And yeah. it's just, like so pervasive. And and when we do that, we also lose so much in these practices. Like we lose integrity to, in our relationship to them. We lose a sense of like dignity in you know where they where they come from in our relationships to some of those lineages and cultures. We lose access to them like I'm thinking Mm -hmm. so much about just like for folks of color who've like lost access to their own practices in part through how they've been like mass marketed and appropriated um and so yeah like I'm thinking more and more about instead of like like when we say I think appropriation to me is a relational um process of like extraction and non-consensual engagement and exploitation and disrespect like it's just a terrible form of relationship and so I'm more I'm curious about like what kind of relationship do I want to be into to practices and you know I don't really I don't think it's like up to me to say whether or not it's like always okay or not okay to practice something because every practice is so different and they're shared in different ways but um, what has kind of like emerged for me through like also conversations with um, some like very dear friends and collaborators, um, mostly other white people who are kind of trying to muddle their way through this stuff too, is just a sense of like how if we're coming to practices that are from cultural traditions that we are not a part of, especially as white people, like what are we offering in ex- exchange? Like how are we in reciprocity with that? And if we have no idea who we are, where we come from, who our people are, what they believed, you know, then it's a one-sided relationship. And I, I deeply believe that we can have relationships across culture that can be consensual and, and um, reciprocal. And um, that does not feel like what it is when we're, you know, we don't, when we're kind of like just going to like a hot yoga class that costs $18 and we're even engaging in like some other kind of like more spiritually rooted traditions. Um, I think we, if we don't know what we're aligning ourselves with, like we're participating potentially in a lot of harm. And so, yeah, that's kind of put me on this path of like, okay, well, who are my people and like, how did they understand embodiment and what did they, what were they practicing? And you know, that question was just like opened up like a whole new kind of like realm. Um, And it's interesting how somatics in the last few years has become really like popularized, but (laughs) is, has a, is a, has a very long lineage. So from some of my understanding and learning about the origins of like what we call somatics, it was really like, it happened, that term started to be used in the seventies by, um, a couple by a group of people who were like experimenting with psychedelics and like embodied practices, all kind of like through really, yeah, like engaging with lots and lots of different kinds of practices to sort of explore like the evolution of human consciousness. Mm-hmm. And it was bringing together lots of teachers from Europe, like um, uh, Elsa Gindler, and I think Ida Wolf was part of that time. And other people and helper and people who were, who are doing like dance and movement, lots of folks coming out of um, Germany and Austria and um, people who are doing like bioenergetics, um, Alexander Lowen. And 
this was all like they're all kind of converging of course in California (laughs) and and then also bringing in um yeah like the kind of psychedelics movement and then also like meditation and breath work and like yoga and they were like let's we need a name to describe what all of these different things are and I think it was Thomas Hanna who developed a methodology called Hanna somatics was like let's call it somatics because it's like of the body but like somatics is just a term to describe all these other things. It doesn't actually mean anything. <laughs> yeah. um, and some of those people who were like part of that movement were coming out of like actually like resisting fascism in like post-World mm-hmm. War II Europe and learning about like exactly like we were talking about, like how the body moves more like fluidly and freely. A lot of those lineages are about how the body moves in its most like optimal um, fluid, spacious kind of way, the ways that the bodies, the bodies are meant to move, you know, relationships to gravity, relationships to movement. And, um, one of the like people who's kind of credited as being the sort of like Western, um, kind of, yeah, kind of developer of somatic psychology, Wilhelm Reich died in prison, um, because the work that he was doing was considered like so anti-authoritarian. He wrote a book called The Mass Psychology of Fascism. And he was like, you know, he fled Europe and, you know, lived through, like lived in the time of um, multiple waves of fascism and had like, was like an inherently radical politicized person who faced a lot of persecution in his life because he kept talking about the body and sexuality. And so there's a lot of dignity in, for me as a, you know, a white practitioner who has ancestry in Eastern Europe to like knowing about these people. Um, And I could go on and on about like all the different ways that embodiment practices kind of like emerged in Europe and how some, some of them went on to kind of be like connected to the, um, to the Nazi party. And some of them went on to, to be like underground and like people had to flee Europe because they, what they were doing was considered so dangerous. Like it's actually mm-hmm. kind of a wild history. And then we have that converging with um, yoga and Reiki and all of these other things. And then, and I think there's something too, about like, it's much more sexy and exotic to, mm-hmm. you know, romanticize these other, we're not that interested in our own kind of people a lot of the time it's like we want this kind of sense of culture and like there's a lot of like entitlement and grasping um in how that whole field has been shaped it's you know it seems really cool to talk about like going to like the amazon and learning these practices from indigenous people and there's so many layers to how i think this this work has been created and built and I guess I feel like part of my work is kind of trying to like excavate some of that and peel some of that back and like find the parts that I want to feel that I want to embody and and align myself with and speak to those and like really draw those lineages forward and also like be in a practice of like repair around where things have been. You know, I had a yoga practice for 20 years. Like I, I definitely have participated in like taking things that I didn't have much to offer in return for. And like, um, yeah, so I think it's I'm thinking a lot about a lot about relationality and and not so much about getting it right or wrong because mm-hmm. like that's just more of that like purity kind of um you know how do we like be in a practice of embodied remembering as well as 
acknowledging the current conditions that we're in and moving resources and like access towards um, healing within BIPOC communities. And that is like choice-based and, you know, not about us actually, <laughs> just removing ourselves from that um, and doing our own work around this stuff. So I don't know, I just had a lot of different things, but that's kind of some of what I'm exploring. I appreciate that so much. It feels like the exact opposite of <laughs> what I think I see a lot and feel in myself the impulse to do too sometimes of where I feel like some of anti-racism work, some of ancestral work and lineage work is like, we want to just have a list of stuff to do and be like, check, check. I lit a candle for my ancestors. I read a book, I, you know, and it's like, what you're talking about is a deep process that actually changes you and actually yeah. changes your life. And it is quite different than like the whole capitalist programming of like, boop, boop, boop. Okay. Now we're good. Now I can do yoga and I don't have to feel bad about it. Yeah, exactly. And like, I came up through that kind of way of doing things too. And I was like, people are always asking like, how do I do this so that I'm not appropriating? And I'm like, you're probably going to keep, you're probably going to, you don't, you can't know that. <laughs> like, we don't know where this, where like, so we don't know so many of the origins practices emerge from culture. They don't just like drop out of the sky. And so yeah. we can't really necessarily know that we're completely free from appropriation, but we can be working towards a different kind of relationship. And, mm. um, and I think that is like also included in like how we um, engage with like our own peoples and traditions as well. Like I remember reading this post, I can't remember the person's name, but she runs it. Her Instagram account is the root circle and she's an herbalist. And she was talking about the idea of appropriating from our own lineages Mm -hmm. And it, it like really, it put words to something I'd been experiencing that I think is exactly what you're saying, where it's like, I've, I know all the stories, I know all the myths, I know I've learned all of this stuff. And it's like, yeah, but like, we've been removed from that for hundreds of years. And from to skip over that estrangement mm -hmm. is kind of part of the problem. And it's important to have connection to something before and but I think just like learning a protocol just feels like the wrong, it doesn't feel very embodied to me. Mm. And so I've been in kind of a pro process of like unknowing and like mm. sort of like basically feeling like learning to a practice, learning to do a practice that I, that we don't know how to do <laughs> in terms of just like feeling into mm. that space and that emptiness of, and that grief and, you know, asking for, connection and support from our ancestors and sort of really there there weren't necessarily protocols and practices people were doing there were ways of life and belief systems and um the body was part of that in a day-to-day -day kind of way and that's starting to take the shape of some more specific kinds of practices but that I really want that to feel like something that I'm cultivating for myself rather than like reading in a book and then following so I can get it right. Right. Always at the getting it right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You bring up grief and that feels like so much part of this for me too. I mean, I think anytime we're working with the body, grief is there. I mean, grief is just part of human experience and yeah, the grief of having disconnection. And I think you've said the words unbelonging too, to mm -hmm. our own lineages and our own practices. And 
Brie feels really present for me at this moment in my life in this year. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that you feel like sharing around grief and holding grief and your connection to it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Grief is one of those things that can be hard to talk about for for white people. We've really learned to not talk about it. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think I think it's I think so much of whiteness is about unprocessed grief and yeah what do I what what feels true or important to say I think it just that it's we have to kind of learn to befriend our grief because it's not going anywhere and build a kind of um Mary Oliver has a really beautiful poem about grief where she talks about like putting it in a raincoat and like holding its hand <laughs> and just kind of being like grief is my little pal like we're just going to hang out and it's sometimes it's going to be bigger and louder and sometimes it's going to feel less present but it's always kind of like part of the mix and um this is a space where I think practice and ritual can offer us so much that having regular places or ways that we can be with grief and acknowledge and like process grief collectively or in the solo practice um, is really a way to kind of be in relationship to it in an ongoing way that it's just kind of with us. And so let's make some space for it. And mm. um, I've, you know, learned from in my own kind of like research and practice that like that, if we want to be connecting with ancestors and traditions, including as, um, with our European ancestors, grief practices used to be a part of so much of daily life. Like I think about like rituals around keening and collective mourning and and obviously many traditions have celebrations of the dead. And so that is a way that being cut off, it's kind of like feedback loop. It's like we're, we feel grief because we're disconnected and um, so we've lost the practices that help us to grieve. It's just like so sad to even think about that. Um, but a way back into relationship is to start to create spaces where we allow ourselves to feel grief. That is a way of connecting to ancestral practice. And it's also a way of grieving and making space for the grief that we carry and creating some containment around it because grief can feel like it has like no edges and just like swallows mm -hmm. everything. And um, I think that's why ritual ritual is so important because it creates a kind of beginning, middle and end and offers a space in, inside that for some kind of transformation to occur so that we're not just like weighed down by these unspoken, unspoken things. So yeah, grief to me feels really sacred. It's also where transformation, you know, if we can't face what we're grieving, it's really hard to let the next thing happen mm. for the next thing to come through. So um, it's become yeah. something I've gone from being afraid of to really feeling more as like having a lot of potential and potency. And yeah, it's like we need supports to be with because it's there's just so much. And it's yeah. not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I was just saying yesterday to someone is 
they were checking in with me about the grief that I've been working with. And I was just saying, I'm trying to figure out how to just live with it and accept that it's never going away, Um, that I'm going to grieve this for my whole life. Mm -hmm. And that's a really different way of working with grief than like white culture being like, you only get to grieve if somebody dies and then it's like a funeral and then maybe it's okay if you're sad for a couple of weeks and then you need to like get it together and get over it. And it's exactly. like, wow, that's so, <laughs> that's so not real. <laughs> that's no. not how grief works. Grief is wild and mm-hmm. it's big. And I, yeah, I love you bringing up that Mary Oliver poem, like mm-hmm. learning how to hold hands with our grief and take mm-hmm. it along with us. Cause it's going to be here regardless. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it is wild. And it's also like really unproductive. Like, <laughs> it's like we want to create like, okay, you, yes, you have a funeral. And, and like, even at the funeral, you're not supposed to cry. You're just supposed to sit there and like look reserved. Composed. But, yeah. Like, and, and I think about like how much grief has been pathologized. Like if you have like these kind of external expressions of like huge grief and emotion that is, you know, that's considered inappropriate or problematic. And I learned recently, this is wild from, I think I learned this from Camille Barton, who is a wonderful embodiment teacher who I did some grief ritual facilitation with earlier this fall. And they talked about, it was, I think it was Camille, um, the DSM, which is like, you know, this like a big diagnostic uh, tool that's used by psychologists and has a very oppressive history. They added a new category last year that is called prolonged grief syndrome. And it's basically, you know, exactly what we're talking about, grief that doesn't go away. And so now that's something you can be diagnosed with. Wow. (laughs) And of all times, they added this in like the last year, like thinking about, is there any better time to be experiencing prolonged grief than, you know, like the, like multiple waves of like global pandemic, like just the, the like unveiling of like the inner workings of white supremacy culture, like just all an attempted coup, like just so many, so much death. It's mm-hmm. the only re- response that makes sense is to be in prolonged grief, mm-hmm. but no, that's a problem. So now your, your psychologist can <laughs> diagnose you with this. So it just says so much about our cultural ideas about grieving and how it's really pathologized. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. I mean, I feel like to be alive and actually present, like you're saying, is to be in grief. Like there's those things that you're naming. There's the grief of climate change. There's all this interpersonal grief. There is grief at these huge collective scales and at these small interpersonal scales. And it's all here. And if we're really, yeah, I think alive and present and open, then how can we not see it and feel it yeah and I I really like I don't know if you feel this but I feel like what would happen if we just let ourselves acknowledge how how much grief and how much fear we're actually experiencing because my I feel like so much of what's going on including the solutions that we're like kind of trying to like urgently scramble for are like attempts to not feel how afraid and how sad we are Yes. And it's like if we admit those things, and I mean, I say this as someone who's completely participates in this too, but like, it's like if we admit those things, we're somehow admitting that like they're, 
that we are giving up or that there's nothing we can do. And it's like, I don't like, there are some things that are, are irreversible at this point. Like, what would it mean to just say, like, I feel so, so, so sad about all of the loss that's happened and we're not going to get those things back. Even if somehow miraculously we, you know, we turn things around, like it's not going to undo that. And it's, it's actually not a process I think of invalidating or giving up. It's of honoring like the impacts of these things. And I just feel like it frees up energy mm. for, for what comes next. Cause it's a lot, takes a lot of work to not feel. It's like actually a huge amount of work. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge amount of work. I've heard it described as like pressing a beach ball down all the time. And then it's, <laughs> yeah. like, it's like the idea of you don't have to try and find grief. You just like stop trying yeah, to not press feel it. On the beach ball. <laughs> and then it's here. Yeah. yeah. And that feels yeah. really true to me. Mm, I like that image. It's very accurate. Yeah. Yeah. I want to shift and ask you the last question I always ask on this show, which I feel like we're talking about the whole time. And when I feel like I'm doing a podcast interview, I really love, I feel like we've been talking about it the whole time. So thank you for being so wonderful. (laughs) Um, But what does living open mean to you? What comes up when you hear that? Hmm. Not knowing. (laughs) it's this doing what we don't know how to do um which are words that I recently learned from Michael J Morris who's a really wonderful um astrologer and embodiment teacher and dancer and Mm. yeah they just sort of talked about the role of embodiment in this work of just like doing what we don't know how to do because that's the only way we're going to embody something different from what we've always done and it's yeah an inherently queer and liberatory thing I think to feel into the spaces between what we know how to do and let our bodies show us the way so and that is a practice I have to remind myself that I'm consciously trying to engage with every day because Mm. I have a lot of you know like we all do cultural shaping around knowing and cognition (laughs) and um, it's a deep deep relief and deeply transformative to surrender to not knowing and um, just kind of like apprentice ourselves to that process I think yeah not knowing is what comes Mm. through for me with that question (laughs) yeah thank you for sharing that the idea of apprenticing yourself to that process feels I don't know that's touching something inside me so yeah Could you tell everyone where they can find you and connect with you and work with you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It's nice to end on that note after sort of making this very vague statement about (laughs) not knowing what to do, but like, actually there are practices for that. There are Um, steps we have for you. (laughs) Sometimes you know what to do. (laughs) You can kind of hang out in the not knowing. Um, Yeah. You can find me on, my website is wildbody.ca and that, that has all the listings of my upcoming workshops and offerings and I'm on Instagram at, at wild body somatics and I run a weekly practice group that you can sign up for through both those spots where we practice not knowing together mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you're curious to get a taste of what that's like um and I also like I have a newsletter um you can sign up for my website where I share the 
work of many of my um, peers and collaborators who are also in this practice because um, we don't do anything alone. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was really lovely to have this conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on instagram at e-r-y-n-j underscore or patreon until then